Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Vrosco's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman, coming at you from Boca Raton, Florida, tonight. So we're going to start off with the, the real lyric of the day. This comes from uh, a rapper, Meek Mill, off of his album, Championships. Uh, this is the song, Cold Hearted 2. Um, see if I can find it. Here we go. So he says, for the love of the millions, royalty over loyalty, never get it confused. I got real friends and family that'll never turn their back on me for the love of the money. I got a homie that's doing life. He can't offer me no money. He can't offer me nothing but a friendship and a relationship. I talk to him seven days a week. Speaking right now, that is the guest, our guest on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. My, my friend. Uh, Chris, Chris, uh, Chris Wyckoff, and Chris is a really interesting guy. Um, he is a life coach, a full-time computer science student at the University of Oregon, also a biology man, um, and remarkably a former World Series of Poker dealer for five years. So Chris, is just, uh, Chris, we met, um, you know, the summer of. A couple summers ago when we were biology lab partners for that introductory sequence. That's correct. And, you know, I remember just, uh, you know, sitting down and talking to you. And I remember that one of the first labs where you, you would ask something, some, something that was like very much like a biohacking question. You asked like something about like mitochondrial functions. Like, and I'm like, oh man, like this guy, this guy must be into like some of the same stuff I'm into. So I, I remember after that, I struck up a conversation with you. I don't, I don't know if you, you did. Yeah, I yeah. Sure. But then we just we just started talking, got into you know the different supplements we're into and fasting and a lot of the stuff we'll talk about in the podcast today. But you know, Chris, uh, just a very fascinating guy and and has definitely lived uh, quite quite a lot of different sort of lives. I would say. Well, and, I mean, for. Uh... You know, male, white, American, I probably have lived more lives than that demographic generally does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, uh, I've lived a very privileged life overall. Um, and I almost screwed it all up, but now I think I'm back on the right track. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Curious. We'll definitely uh, get into that. Yeah. However much you want to get into, but sure. curious if, if you could first off kind of just tell me a little about, um, you know, I think I've heard part of the story, but mm -hmm. you, know, you just tell me and our listeners, you know, about um, kind of what first got you interested in this whole idea of being able to sort of modify and control our biology and now it's evolved into this very popular concept of biohacking. How, how did you, or why did you originally get into that? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you say popular. I mean, I think that it's more emergently popular. Um, and you, you still meet a lot of resistance uh, to the idea of biohacking, right? Because a lot of people believe that their mentality their physicality is somewhat set they can't really change it that much you know maybe they can go to the gym maybe they can 
eat healthier, but overall nothing's really going to change. And um, that's kind of the mentality that I tend to reject these days. Um, In terms of my own personal journey with biohacking, it really started out of a desire and bordering on necessity for myself to get healthier. Um, In 2014, I was pretty ill. I had really bad inflammatory bowel disease. I was super badly composed in terms of like my body composition. I was like skinny fat, super skinny fat. I was having um, GERD, which is like gastrointestinal reflux disorder. And I was going going to see specialists. This is part of the time in my life when I was poker dealing. And they were just saying that I was stressed and that there's nothing that like they could really do about it. And so around that time is when I started seeking out different answers outside of the mainstream medical community. Um, and what I found was that a lot of the stuff that we do in our daily lives is fairly toxic. And if you just cut, start cutting some of those things out, you can, the body will tend to heal itself. So that being the core kind of tenet of what I'm trying to do personally is like allow the body to do what it does best. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that definitely seems like uh, there was kind of the, the, the need. You were kind of curious as far as why this stuff was going on. And yeah. I think it's something where we usually, you know, if, it, if everything's working right and we're feeling good all the time, most people wouldn't have, you know, the need to really biohack things. But then it's like, you know, once we start seeing problems that aren't necessarily, you know, it's not like you have a tumor that you can see on an MRI and doctors can go in and look at it and take it out. It's something where it's like, we're talking, I mean, I feel like biohacking is like incredibly complex where it's, oh, yeah. I mean, you could get further and further into it where you're just analyzing, you know, the composition of a single, you know, plant compound, you know, right. right. Where it's, uh, you know, it, it's very in depth and, and a lot of it we don't know as far as exactly, um, what, um, you know, like what is going to be right for one person versus what's going to be right for another pe- person. But I mean, I think a lot of the like latest, you know, with genes, as we learn more about genes and the environment, you know, epigenetics, I think is a super cool field, but yeah, I think, I think biohacking, I think you're right that it's, it's something that maybe is not popular in, in the very, very much like the mainstream right now, but I feel like it's definitely getting there. I mean, it's, it's gotten to a point where people, um, People, I feel like, are are more aware that we're kind of living in this world. Like, maybe it's people realizing just their own unhappiness with either how they feel or just, you know, their stress levels and stuff. But, you know, I've, I feel like the biohacking, like, goes along with kind of the wave of, like, like meditation and yoga, you know, how that's all become, you know, I feel like more and more people are, are kind of 
gravitating towards those practices, I think, you know, out of a sense of like unhappiness or, or maybe unfulfillment. Do you, do you subscribe to that at all or? Yeah. So I think that the practice of biohacking is still being defined what that is. Um, what I would, I, if I was to hazard a definition, it might be the pr- practice of self physical intervention in order to improve one's metabolism. And I use the word metabolism pretty loosely, whether that be in the body and, you know, the brain uh, also has a metabolism in my, you know, in my opinion. So Mm -hmm. the, the field of biohacking, I think right now appeals to two fairly dichotomized um, sets of populations. So, Potentially people who are maybe where I was, where you're having some medical issues that really the mainstream medical community is having a hard time addressing. So in my case, it was essentially inflammation and poor gut health, poor gut microbiome health. So you have, and those seem to go hand in hand. So you have body inflammation and then I have brain fog which is essentially inflammation in the brain. Yeah. Um, if you look at it from a more macro sense. And then part of what was causing that inflammation is just like uh, overgrowth of yeast in my gut is what I determined. So mm-hmm. those kind of diagnostic tools are really only available if you look at more of the fringe of the medical community. So like if you want to, uh, just for anybody listening, who may be having some kind of issues that they're not having resolved by the mainstream medical community, if you go and see a functional medicine doctor, the functional medicine doctors have to have an additional certification beyond their medical degree that requires them to actually take nutrition classes and take hormonal classes, things like that, uh, both of which are not required but to get a medical degree so you never have to do any kind of nutritional training i had heard absurd in my opinion yeah i had heard like throughout um i was talking to a buddy like throughout the course of his med school program there were like five or six lectures you know that were like devoted to nutrition right you know so it's like yeah it it was so minimized to the point where um you know it's like a lot i think you know you talk to a lot of like Western or, or just conventional like doctors or, or people that just subscribe to those notions. And it's, it's sort of a, a thing of like, well, if we can't see it, you know, if, if we can't like see it on an X-ray or MRI and we can't see that you have some kind of infection, you know, it's like they kind of, you know, throw their hands up. Whereas I think with, with the functional medicine, it's kind of more looking at you know, like kind of the root cause of, of what is actually going on like you know like you were able to figure out like you know maybe you're having the gut issues because of the you know the yeast overgrowth or is some part of that um i think the the thing you touched on about like the brain inflammation super key too Mm -hmm. is that something like everyone can realize or understand the concept of inflammation like when you know you stub your toe and you know 
whatever, break your toe, you know, and your toe inflames as a, as a reaction to that. Um, yeah, absolutely. But we don't see that in the brain. I mean, we see that to, if, if there was a traumatic brain injury and we were to do a brain, you know, look, look at someone's brain, but just on kind of a, a you know, day-to-day level, we can't see our brains, so we can't exactly see the inflammation. But at the same time, when you think about something like, oh, why am I not thinking clearly today? Why am I not remembering that word that I usually am able, like it, it's those things for me, that was really what got me interested where it was like, I noticed such a, a deviation in like my mental performance, you know, mm-hmm. just day to day. And I always was curious, like, oh, is it like, is it, is there like a specific number of hours I need to sleep to be able to like feel the way I want to feel? Or is it like the, the diet? And like, you know, so I, I think from a young age, I was kind of already like, you know, trying to piece the, the, uh, you know, parse the pieces together or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly an interesting thing. And, and the concept of really being able to actually like own, you know, the fact that we all own our biology is I think mm. something that's revolutionary, revolutionary for a lot of people who, who tend to think, I think they're stuck in sort of that fixed old mindset where it's like, Oh, you know, I'm going to go to the doctor and they know what's best. You know, they're, they're in control of my health. Right. And it's like, people are starting to, I think, realize that it's like, no, like, you know, we know more and more about how all of these very common diseases that are kind of plaguing, especially Western society now are so much driven by lifestyle so much, you know, by, you know, the excessive amount of sugar, um, and our diet and lack of exercise and, you know, all this stuff. Um, yeah. And, chronic and, illness, yeah, like you said, is on the rise hugely, and potentially the culprit of of that is, um, like you said, poor lifestyle and also the inability for the large health institutions to adapt. Um, like you said, they're really good at uh, treating acute injury acute disease like you have a virus you have a acute infection you've been shot in the head we're really good at treating those kinds of things like surgery you know is amazing you know the the way that they're able to save people now um is incredible like the success rates on you know c- combat injury uh saving people things like that like are in my, as far as I can tell, really good. But like you said, when it comes to like chronic inflammation, you have like something, a chronic disease that's developed over time, like type 2 diabetes. Like, man, the mainstream medical community reacts really poorly to that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good point you have there. Yeah. Yeah. So biohacking kind of being this emerging sort of, you know, I think paradigm shift in terms of you know, how we kind of view our own health and disease. Um, but I, I'm curious as far as, you know, you've done a lot of, exp- I mean, we've, we've both done a lot of experimentation as far as trying out different things, but yeah. you know, out of all the things you've done, I'm curious, I'm, I'm going to guess, uh, you know, fasting is going to be one of the things you'll say, cause we talk so much about that, but what, mm-hmm. um, maybe fasting or what other things have, have you found to kind of be the most 
profound and, and impactful biohacks for you personally? Well, but you, you, you hit the nail right on the head there. Um, fasting, the abstaining of consumption of food and sometimes even water in some kind of cases where I've experimented with doing dry fasting has certainly been far and away the most powerful biohack that I've, I've tried. Um, in terms of uh, non-fasting biohacks, well, actually, maybe if we if we just stick on the the concept or the the topic of fasting for now, yeah. I think people would be really curious if you could, can you break down, you know, say the differences between, you know, you mentioned the dry yeah. versus, you know, water fast. What why would someone want to, you know, say someone you know has heard a little about the benefits of fasting but doesn't know a lot about it. Why would someone want to restrict water? What What's the benefit there doing a dry fast? So if you did a dry fast, first of all, I would probably only recommend doing a dry fast to someone who's has a fairly good body composition and has already done uh, fasting uh, with water. So just... Uh, right off the bat, it's kind of more advanced technique. Uh, one of the main benefits is that it puts you into potentially a deeper type of ketosis, and you actually start to burn fat at some of the more visceral level even more quickly because fat uh, can actually be changed to water in the body. But we can't quite do it quick enough to save ourselves in like a drought situation. You know, we can't just like survive off fat for water for months like we can for food. Um, so in terms of being what I would call metabolically flexible, where maybe you wanted to have your body be in a metabolic spot where you could survive an extra day, two, three, four days without water. If that was something that appealed to you, just having a more robust and flexible metabolism, then that doing a, a dry fast is a good way to strengthen your metabolism. Put a little stress on it, mm-hmm. and then you know when you come back to the normal, then you're going to be a little more flexible going forward. So you, I've noticed since I've done dry fasts that I don't get thirsty too often, not mm. nearly as much as I used to. And when I do, I'll drink, but it's like I can go, I can play tennis for an hour or two and not take a drink. Whereas before when I used to play tennis, I'd just like be, I run it every, every game I'd be running to the water bottle. That kind Interesting. Of Obviously this anecdotal, but yeah, yeah. Now, that's an interesting thing that you notice. I'm I'm curious, like it just gets me thinking if there is some kind of like something that got kind of regenerated or, or kind of uh, healthier cells formed like in, in the, the hypothalamus, you know, what, you know, what releases a lot of the hormones involved in kind of controlling our, our desire to drink uh, or, you know, control if we're thirsty or not. So could yeah, be. maybe maybe there is some kind of hormonal thing going on there too, but but it's certainly an interesting thing that you noted with that. Yeah. Um, and then as far as um, I mean, it, it, from what I kind of 
understand about fasting, it seems to be one of those things that you sort of touched on it where it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of like you're, you're, you're giving the stress to your metabolism with the goal that it kind of rebuilds at a higher level. And that it sort of seems similar to like exercise, you know, something like yeah. physical exercise in a lot of ways where you're, you know, you're not actually, you know, building muscle when you're lifting weights, you're tearing right. down the muscle, but you're, you're giving your muscles that stress um, in hopes that those muscles are going to react to that stress proactively and, and get bigger and, and stronger. Do you view fasting kind of in a similar light? I definitely do. And that's an analogy that I've been making a lot these days is that, you know, you're not going to fast and then have better performance during your fast. That's kind of like, um, if you do, then you really needed to fast. Like, like I have seen it, right, where people will fast and then they'll like, they're, they were so bogged down with inflammation that their performance actually goes up during a fast, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not where you ought to be optimally, in my opinion. It's like you're saying, when you stop, so let's say you're going to do a 24-hour fast. You're going to stop eating food, and but you're going to drink water. You're going to just do a regular food you know food fast and so you should see a, a fairly steadily declining mental performance just because you're going to have less uh, free glucose available to your brain um and you might see a small uptick in mental performance after about you know 40 hours when your uh, body will go you know enter ketosis for example you might mm -hmm. have a little bit of an uptick but you're probably not going to be at a at a performance where you would be if you say just got up had a very small amount of sugar maybe a little caffeine like a tiny bit of protein and then you went and you know took a test or mm. you know had a job interview something like that that's what i would recommend for you know peak mental performance but it's like you said when you when you do a fast you're putting a heavy stress on your body your body is doing a bunch of stuff in, you know, including cellular recycling, which we can talk mm. about more, uh, and yeah. it's breaking itself down and then building itself back up stronger, certainly. So that way, it's it's like a big investment in your metabolism. Mm -hmm. And do you think it's, it. yeah, and do you think, I'm, I was actually just making this, this connection, because last time I saw you, you know, mm -hmm. what had resulted from, you know, your arms kind of getting inflamed, the you know, mm -hmm. from, from lifting too much, yeah. it, it sort of just made me draw the connection of like, can you sort of put too much stress on, on your body with fasting, do you think? Or is it something where your body, like, you'll just get to a point where your body and brain is just like, eat, like, because, I mean, is it, I don't know, I mean, yeah. can you overdo it or? Yeah, so the rule that I've come to know is that the thing that you're at most risk at risk of as a normal person, someone who has like, you know, over 18% body fat, something like that, which is the vast majority of people have, you know, well over 15, 18% body fat. If you're in the more normal body fat range and you don't have any kind of like metabolic disorder and you're not ill in any way, the thing that you're at most risk at is, um, is running out of micronutrients. So mm. like running out of 
potassium, running out of an electrolyte, mm-hmm. right? You know, something like that. That's where you're at most risk at risk at because you will run out of electrolytes and nutrients before you run out of energy. Mm. Um, so it's not gonna. You're not, if you were to have an, some kind of uh, damaging event during a fast, it wouldn't be because your body is not able to produce ATP, which is the way that the body um, changes fat and sugar into energy. Uh, You wouldn't run out of ATP, you'd run out of magnesium or you'd Mm -hmm. run out of sodium or potassium and have some kind of event that might damage you. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the things to do if you're going to be doing fasting is have a very you know rich nutritive diet when you're not fasting you know mm-hmm. don't you know this is kind of like why potentially the more you know classical way of losing weight has been like go on a diet right just like don't eat a lot and kind of you know maybe even like eat only this one thing or mm-hmm. whatever. And that puts you at risk for nutrient deficiency, right? So that's why I, for me, if I'm advising people to lose weight, then, you know, I'd like them to, to either go on some kind of like nutrient rich ketogenic diet or simply have like a nutrient rich, you know, normal diet and mm-hmm. do fasting. Right. Right. And what about, I mean, would you, do you personally use, um, you know, vitamins or minerals during the fast? Or is that something where you're saying it's it's just a better idea to kind of replenish them or, or go into a fast with good levels, you know, from eating a healthy diet? But w- would you actually incorporate those into a fast? I think that if I was doing fasts for more than seven to ten days, I would start to consider it. Um, but for me personally, I, you know, I'm not really doing fast for more than seven days and I'm being someone who eats like a pretty rich diet. Uh, I'm not really going to be at risk of that. I know that there have been cases. So for example, the longest fast that has been documented was over 400 days. I think you and told me about that. It's yeah. It's a, a case study that was published of a, a severely like morbidly obese mm-hmm. person who, with their doctor, decided that they were going to do a fast and document it. And he ha- had to take, um, you know, multivitamins and sure. things like that. Uh, but because otherwise he probably would have died. Um, but. You know, lo and behold, he took the vitamins, didn't have any calories, you know, maybe maybe there was some like <laughs> rice starch in the supplement or something <laughs> like that. But, uh, you know, probably less than five calories a day uh, for over a year and he was fine. So and, uh, and what I noticed particularly interesting about that, and I think you were the one that that told me about that. And when, mm-hmm. when you first said that. When I first got, you know, heard about that, I was like, no way, that's not possible that he went that long. And lo and behold, you know, anyone can look it up and and it's true. But what I I thought was super fascinating was that I think they did, I don't know if it was like a year or or what 
the timeline was with the follow-up, but the guy was actually able to keep off the weight. Once he started yeah. eating again, it had somehow reset his metabolism that, that year long of fasting. So that was super fascinating to me because you, you know, I think a lot of people, um, I personally can't really relate because I've always been kind of, you know, underweight and trying to, trying to bulk up. But, you know, I think a lot of people go, um, you know, they go on a diet, they restrict their, their, you know, what they eat or how much they eat a lot. Mm -hmm. And then they sort, you know, sort of hit a plateau and then start gaining the weight back. And it, it, I, I am sure we, everyone listening, we all know someone who, you know, keeps going back and forth between, you know, losing weight on a fast versus, you know, so I think it's, it's super fascinating that like something like that case study where it showed that it's actually possible to, to be able to sort of, uh, fix different bodily bodily functions maybe um stabilize the function of some organs i don't know the pancreas you know is definitely uh, a big one that i know is you know definitely gets a rest when when you're fasting from what i've understood about it that is kind of a a big benefit to fasting right is where because i guess just for people who aren't super aware and correct me if i'm wrong uh, if i if i say anything wrong here but um just a, a sort of a primer on how the pancreas actually or why it's actually important, you know, with this discussion. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you take in, you know, glucose, you know, in the form of, of carbs and, you know, sugar, um, you know, it sort of, you know, sends the signal for your pancreas to secrete insulin. And, you know, what, mm-hmm. what happens is, you know, oftentimes, you know, the pancreas is good for a while at actually pumping out proper amounts of insulin to deal with all of the excess, you know, all the glucose coming in. But then you get to a point where we commonly with our Western diets, we eat so much um, carbs, we take in so much glucose that those insulin cells stop working as well. They, they become inefficient, uh, like a condition known um, mm-hmm. as insulin uh, desensit- uh, desensitivity. So, mm-hmm. From what I've understood about fasting, it seems like one of those things where, you know, if we're constantly eating, um, we're never really giving our pancreas a full break where it doesn't have to constantly be pumping out all of the all of its hormones. Does that do you see that as a part of of the fasting benefits? To a certain extent, yes. Uh, I'm sure that your pancreas definitely gets a break as well as almost all of your tissues kind of like get somewhat of a break because there's not nearly as much influx and efflux in your cells. Um, And like you said, when you take in sugar or a carbohydrate more specifically, your insulin does spike. Um, So uh, the rule of thumb is that Fat spikes insulin the least, but it still does uh, bring up insulin secretion. And then protein, and then at the top is carbohydrates. And also, there's emerging research that when you mix carbs and fat or protein and carbs or any of those macronutrients, any of the three macronutrients, anytime you mix them, then there's almost like a, a amplification of how much uh, insulin and other associated um, hormones like end up getting released. 
Mm-hmm. So anytime you have something like a donut that is like carbs, fat, and protein potentially mm-hmm. also, then you're going to be like shooting your insulin like up a ton. Right. Um, and the insulin resistance actually can occur throughout your entire body, not only not just in the pancreas, where the cells no longer respond to insulin. So mm-hmm. that's why you have diabetics with high blood sugar because the insulin's there, but the cells are like, no, like, I'm not opening up to receive the, the sugar because I'm just like not, I have a high tolerance to insulin now. Mm-hmm. So that is what one of the, you know, biggest and most obvious benefits to fasting is your insulin goes basically to zero. Um, your blood insulin is essentially non-existent and all your cells get to kind of recover their tolerance to insulin. So that way, not only will that, you know, improve any kind of like diabetes or pre-diabetes symptoms, that's kind of like the, the far end, but even for people who don't necessarily have a problem, they will start to take up on a cellular level nutrients much better than they did before if they had never fasted. So even if you're like someone who's trying to gain muscle like you or put on more mass, it it, it may be that some of your muscle cells could benefit from having a break from insulin. And then when right. you come back at them with you know, the high nutrition diet that you probably are on, then they're going to be able to be more, you know, tolerant to taking that up. So right. even if you're not overweight, you know, and you're just kind of a normal person fasting just from a metabolic, you know, food energy standpoint, not to mention that, you know, can, you know, cancer reduction benefits and stuff like that, what we might get mm-hmm. into, there's, there's, you know, pretty upfront benefits that you can, you can receive yeah and and i think that's that's a great point as far as you know insulin's effect on all different sort of tissues and organs and and muscle you know throughout your body what particularly interests me just you know since i'm a like neurophysiology researcher is Mm -hmm. you know looking looking at the stuff as far as you know there's a subset of researchers who are now calling um alzheimer's type 3 diabetes because there's such a strong link um, between, you know, the, the high blood sugar being, you know, directly toxic to neurons, yeah. um, you know, where obviously you need, you know, bl- you know, blood sugar, um, glucose and ketones being the two kind of fuel sources for your brain. And you obviously need a certain amount of, of glucose to, you know, be able to think and, and, you know, be alive, uh, you know, but I think for the majority of people, it's, having a, a huge overabundance of glucose and that's where we're seeing kind of the the toxic effects on on cells um particularly i mean the, the brain's particularly sensitive so i think it, I'm, I'm super curious to see the the future of kind of research in that that field um, yeah but yeah i mean especially with alzheimer's not having you know uh a drug that has a high degree of efficacy, you know, maybe something like fasting. I know, I don't know if you, did you read Dale Bredesen's, uh, work, um, his end of Alzheimer's book? No, I'd highly recommend that, um, to you as well as the audience. 
Um, it's basically, he's a doctor, um, I believe a neurosurgeon out of UCLA um, researcher. So he's, he's kind of put together this Bredesen protocol that, that is supposed to, you know, sort of treat. The way he explains it is that Alzheimer's is kind of the result of the roof falling down, where the roof's not going to fall down if there's all just, a, you know, a couple tiny holes. But, yeah. you know, once you get, you know, so continuing the, the analogy, it's sort of like, okay, we know, you know, that, you know, high blood sugar is one of those holes and we know, you know, toxic elements, you know, like mercury, you know, that fits into the equation, you know. Um, yeah. So it's like all of these things that he sort of pieces together and, and his protocol is sort of, you know, fixing, you know, plugging as many holes as you possibly can. I think that's, it, it definitely aligns with that, the functional medicine kind of approach that, that we were talking about in the beginning, I think, where we're kind of looking at the body as a, as a full system. Um, yeah. And not just directly on a, you know, disease, but what's kind of causing your body to perform well or, or not well. Yeah. I'm just reading the blurb. Uh, about the book and it seems like he even he's outlining 36 metabolic factors micronutrients yes. hormone levels sleep etc that can trigger yeah. downsizing the brain very interesting yeah and what i was what i was going to say is or i don't think i mentioned it was you know he's a big proponent of fasting you, you know everyone i think on that protocol is like a 16 you know the 16 hour um fasting eight hour eating window so he definitely talks about the benefits as far as, as brain health and, you know, yeah. um, can, sure we're going to continue to learn more as far as, you know, fasting and its effects on, on the brain. And if it can be, you know, efficacious and, and maybe preventing, I, I think especially preventing, you know, I think that seems to be the best way of, of dealing with these neurodegenerative diseases. You don't want to start treating them once they've begun. You want to like live a healthy lifestyle. So you, don't set yourself up to actually develop them. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm curious, you know, kind of moving a little away from fasting, you know, yeah. what what other what other biohacks have you found to be most impactful that you've noticed the biggest difference from? Well, exercise could be considered a biohack. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that that's probably one of the most prominent biohacks that people are doing and they don't even really categorize it as such right but you know clearly i think it's just you know irrefutable at this point that exercise although it's effortful and it requires you know some amount of skill and and uh, mental and physical effort obviously as i said uh, benefits your long-term physical goals right and you're going to be generally not only physically more able but mentally more able as well um so i would categorize that as hugely beneficial biohack mm -hmm. uh but that kind of goes without that saying um sorry go ahead well i was sorry to interrupt i was just going to say i mean i you know you're very good at kind of parsing apart all the the research you know and really digging in deep mm -hmm. and exercise is one of those things where it's like, you know, some people could define exercise as, you know, taking a walk around the block, whereas other people, it's like, you know, power lifting in the gym. 
Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I've seen certainly a lot of stuff come out nowadays about like the high intensity interval training. Um, yeah. Which I think we've talked about that you're a fan yeah. of, right? But is there, Definitely. have you know, I mean, do you, do you see in the research any trend as far as what, what form of exercise is going to be kind of produce the most uh, bang for your buck per se? Uh, from the research that I've done, it appears that resistance training, otherwise known as weightlifting, is probably the most beneficial thing that you can do. Um, the from a hormonal standpoint, you're going to promote like the release of growth hormone and testosterone, which is good for both men and women. Um, you know among several other hormones that you're going to be promoting. And, and that's going to be huge. Not to mention that a lot of the decline that we see in elderly people is because they don't have the structural uh, support of their tissues, you know, holding them up anymore because, you know, obviously there's a certain inevitable decline that occurs. But a lot of, a lot of people have, have, you know, never lifted weights you know, in the last 20, 30 years, if ever in their lifetime, and then they're having like back, you know, issues where they can't stand up straight and they can't walk and stuff like that. And then it's potentially because they've never really, you know, strained their body to the point where they had to, you know, promote growth hormone in the body and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. In addition, walking appears to be really good for your mentality and also for like your posture and for your nervous system. Um, but in terms of more like your tissues, you know, resistance training and also uh, high intensity kind of like plyometric or, you know, sprinting, something that where you, you know, you're almost doing resistance training with, with your own body, that kind of thing mm -hmm. um, seems to be the most beneficial um, yeah, there's some the interesting research as far as uh, sprinting. I noticed uh, in particular that they've found to to promote um, BDNF, brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor, so mm -hmm. increasing the growth of, of new neurons, um, the new connections amongst brain cells, and that's something that actually I believe fasting does too, right? Yeah, I've seen yeah. yeah some stuff that it promotes BDNF, so that may be another mechanism in which it kind of strengthens brain performance along with, with exercise. And yeah. I mean, I've, it, uh, Oh, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. I've read that, you know, that you can increase the amount that you actually retain information by exercising after a learning yeah. experience. So yes. and I've seen the same I wouldn't much. be surprised if it's directly related with the release of BDNF and potentially other hormones that we may or may not even know about. You know, it seems like they're always like, oh, we discovered this new internal biological feature that we have. So, right, uh, which is kind of like you have to take all of this stuff that we're saying and other people are saying with a grain of salt because biology is like still a fast expanding frontier of knowledge. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you are, we're probably going to look back at this podcast and like, 10 years and be like, man, we were idiots. Like, I, I, you know, I've, but I feel like that's just the general, like research in general, especially with the brain, it's, it's evolving so quickly. Um, and there's so much we still don't know that 
Right. I think I think it's going to be astonishing, you know, what we see with these different things in, in five, 10 years, you know, within easily within our lifetime. I think there's going to be huge discoveries and changes. Yeah, but, probably. Yeah, uh, hopefully we won't think we're, that we're idiots, but maybe we just <laughs> didn't, didn't quite know this or that. Yeah, yet. That, that's, and, a, uh, that's a better way to put it. And uh, to to a certain extent, um what you're saying is it reminds me of uh, something that I believe David Asprey uh, said in his book um, about biohacking. One of them uh, could have been headstrong, I think maybe was. And what he what he said in his book is that you can either like wait for the research to come in and like, where we understand everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Or you can just start to do the things that seem to be pretty obviously working, you know, for people who are at the forefront of this kind of, uh, you know, biohacking field. They're like, this is kind of working. We're not, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have every single hormonal step, you know, clinically researched. And, uh, but, you know, like you can, you can wait or you can just go for it. And I tend to be the guy who just goes for it. So, yeah. definitely same yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah i'm i want to i want to transition a little bit um well as far as you know i think this is a good transition into you know you've kind of you know uh you're so well versed in a lot of you know different you know whether it be biology or now computer science um psychology a lot of these different disciplines where you've you've got you've sort of synthesized this knowledge and then basically put it into practice with with your life coaching program mm, uh yeah. or company right mm-hmm. tell me tell me a little about how where the uh, where did the inspiration for that kind of come from and then kind of um you know what what uh what's rewarding about doing that sort of stuff yeah so i've done a decent amount of lifestyle nutrition and mentality coaching over the last five or six years uh i'm not doing as much of it right now because i'm kind of at the tail end of my computer science degree that i'm doing so i've tapered off uh taking on as many clients uh but yeah for the last several years i've tried to identify with the clients that i've had you know what their goals are because I think that having long-term goals is like one of the first steps toward being happier. And then also identifying um, body composition goals and also, you know, energy level goals that people have and move towards those. Um, So if you mix kind of classical motivational psychology with having noticeably higher energy because you're doing physical biohacking intervention on somebody that seems to be a good mix of of inputs and intervention that end up kind of catapulting people towards what i would call like real happiness which is essentially Mm -hmm. just strength mental physical emotional strength and the ability to delay, delay gratification which is much easier if you're feeling like you have a high amount of energy on a daily basis. 
Right. Yeah, that, that's definitely, that's an interesting topic within itself about, you know, just happiness. And, you know, it's like whether, I mean, I tend to subscribe to the notion where it's more like, you know, if you can get, you know, every cell in your body firing, you know, as, as well as they can be, um, you know, you should feel very energized and you should feel happy. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, sort of debates as far as, you know, you know, what, what are kind of causes of, of unhappiness and whether it's kind of like brought about by your light, you know, societal things or, or mm -hmm. just kind of like past, you know, obviously like me being in kind of the field of psychology, there's like a lot of, you know, oh, you're the, you know, you're feeling this way because of past, you know, trauma. childhood trauma, which yeah. I'm not going to completely dismiss as, as BS, but at the same time, I, you know, the reason I kind of gravitated more towards neuroscience is because it's a lot more like things we can quantify um, as far as like, and, you know, and actually like improve where mm -hmm. uh, even though we don't know a lot or we don't know a ton, uh, but at the same time, you know, something where it's like, you're never really going to know if, you know, the fact that your fifth grade teacher, you know, picked on you, whether that is, you know, playing a part in how, you know, you're mm. functioning as an adult right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I don't, you know, advertise myself as someone who knows how to deal with huge amounts of PTSD or trauma or something like that. But from what I've come to understand is that trauma is certainly a real thing. And to a large extent, what trauma ends up being, you know, down the line is maladaptive um, survival mechanisms. And whether that be, you know, a more physical or more emotional survival mechanism. And then it's no longer appropriate in the context of your life in the future but that's now ingrained in you so like if something traumatic something kind of out of the ordinary something really bad ends up happening to you then potentially during that time of your life just to survive emotionally you had mm -hmm. to develop this kind of like unhealthy mm -hmm. mental habit that then down the line is like you know, throwing you way out of whack when you're in a more normal scenario again, because you just like are are tuned into this to this not normal, unhealthy, traumatic scenario, um, mm -hmm. and you know that is something one of the hardest things to repair. Um, but in terms of people who maybe just have more. Uh, haven't been educated about uh, how to set goals, how to end up achieving some a long-term goal. Uh, that's more where where I come in and bridging the gap between like your your emotional life and your physical life. I think is really important because one of the things that I've found most effective towards achieving goals is doing things that are physically hard right because mm -hmm. achieving goals is somewhat of an emotional journey and, or an intellectual journey but if you're you know for example if you're waking up every day and you're taking like an ice bath and then you're like lifting weights 
and then you're going about your intellectual day, nothing seems quite as hard, I think, yeah. after that. Yeah. So those kind of things where you're bridging that gap between your intellectual and your physical life, because we are physical beings, there's no getting around that in, you know, at least now. We're not cyborgs huh. yet. Not so yet. I, I think it's important to embrace that kind of like dynamic between our like mental and physical metabolism, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I think that's very, very well put. Um, yeah. I'm curious, uh, you know, as far as kind of uh, taking a, a 180 or 360 turn, um, you know, I, uh, it's interesting that now you're, you know, in this this uh, sort of line of work, um, but you used to, you know, be doing something very, very different, which is, um, you know, as a dealer in the World Series of Poker. And mm-hmm. that's something certainly not a lot of people can uh, put on their job resume as, as something that they've done. Mm, so yeah. That's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting thing. That was, that was before I met you, but, uh, what, and just, uh, I think you've told me a little about just your path into poker, but mm-hmm. tell me about kind of, you know, uh, how you got into it and then, you know, maybe, uh, so talk about some lessons and maybe, maybe actually relating it back to the life coaching. Cause sure. you yeah. talked to me about, you know, last time we, we talked in person when I was in Eugene uh, a few weeks ago and, you know, you were talking to me about that, that phenomena that is, you know, occurs with, with the poker players, right? Yeah. I believe it was something about negativity. I think you're referring to loss aversion. Loss aversion. That was yeah. it. Yeah. But, but if you could just kind of tell me about, I mean, it seems like, you know, you having actually done that, mm-hmm. you're kind of a lot more qualified to be able to understand what sort of goes behind that sort of mentality so if you could just talk a little about that yeah certainly um so maybe we'll bring it back to loss aversion in a second uh when i was 21 years old i got trained as a poker dealer here in eugene uh and part of the reasons i got trained as a poker dealer was because it was a way for me to make a decent amount of money in a short amount of time so I could continue to live my like lazy video game all day, every day lifestyle. Um, so as kind of like interesting as it may seem, to a certain extent, being a poker dealer was a symptom of a poor and less than optimal in terms of the long-term mm. consequences lifestyle. Okay. Uh, what it also may be is that I tend to be maybe better than average at identifying like the best thing, best line of work to be in given my current motivation. So for example, now I'm looking into, you know, becoming a computer scientist and then potentially continuing my education in Internet of Things and AI, machine learning. And I think that, you know, probably a lot of people would agree, especially if you're technical, that that, that seems to be where, like, the, the 
a lot of you know money is flowing and a lot of like things are going uh, in the world towards automation that kind of thing so it's not necessarily a bad field to be in versus like you know maybe uh you know historical uh, anthropology or something like that might not be as like good of a, a lucrative of a undergrad to be pursuing right um no, but, no offense to all the the historical anthropologists well, out there you know there just aren't enough there aren't enough museum jobs out there for everyone and oh, man, it's a bummer so yeah i mean by all means but uh that that's an interesting dynamic right when you're on a podcast you like you have to really be careful what you say uh, to a certain extent, because like any any off the cuff remark could be, you know, construed against. Oh yeah, so. I thought about that a lot actually. I mean, because obviously, probably people listening to it right now are probably the, you know, amongst the the first people listening. Probably a lot of family friends, you know. But at the same time, you know, I don't know. You know, maybe this does one day become, you know, bigger and, you know, just kind of a a, a little bit of a plug. You know, we've got. Uh, some very cool guests coming up. Um, yeah, sounds like to be on the podcast. So um, hopefully, you know, with their bigger audiences and reach, you know, you bring up a good point where it's like, yeah, like I, you do really have to. I, I, I was thinking about this a lot as far as you know. Um, obviously, I, I wanted, you know, and I think I think we're doing a good job of making it very kind of a, a, a genuine interaction where. You know, we're not, you know, putting on these facades and, and pretending, you know, uh, you're, you know, trying to make ourselves like look good and, or, you know, yeah, uh, or just kind of be fake. But at the same time, you know, there's obviously, uh, you know, stuff that, that maybe even if you say it and it's somewhat debatable, like, or it's somewhat like, uh, uh, like open for interpretation especially we see this a lot in the media, people will tend to just take something and run with it, even right. if it wasn't actually your intention. Sure. Well, hopefully the, the, they're, they start writing inflammatory articles about you, Toby. I mean, they say, they say any news is good news, yeah, right? News. Or any, oh, any, yeah. yeah, so. Any, any media is good or whatever. Yeah, yeah. probably. Yeah, I mean, just ask Donald. Bring it, bring it on. So I, I should just say <laughs> something right now. <laughs> That's going to get me in a bunch of trouble. But yeah, man. Like, I you won't. know, <laughs> climate I change, you know, something like that, you know, like start saying stuff about, like, you know, gender stuff. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. Very sensitive subjects right now. Yeah. Just trigger all the snowflakes, dude. Everyone. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, I can I can kind of long story short uh, yeah. what we were talking about. And anyways, I, I ended up becoming trained as a poker dealer. I moved to Las Vegas uh, shortly after that, got a job at the World Series of Poker. I had, you actually auditioned for that. So you actually you sit around a table and there's a judge and you they say, OK, deal this poker game deal texas hold'em and and these are the blinds and these are the chip stacks and go and then you deal that hand and uh or they say oh deal this omaha game these are the chip stacks and this is the situation this is what this player did and then you deal that 
And so it's kind of an interesting experience. And I ended up getting a job, just, you know, just barely got it, but I got it. And this is after about two months of, of being a dealer. And yeah, I ended up traveling around the country uh, and spending a lot of time in Las Vegas as a poker dealer. Was able to work pretty intensely for a week here and there and then take a bunch of time off and play video games in my apartment all day mm. with my future wife who is like amazing that she put up with that <laughs> and yeah so it was a decent it was a decent way to make a living it's this you know service industry job but ended up you know being seeing some celebrities at my table and especially poker celebrities some of the big poker celebrities dealt to all of them and yeah so um it, it it served a purpose to allow me to have this kind of freedom that I needed during my early 20s um but poker and the poker industry to a certain extent provides less value than a lot of under other industries to society because you're not creating anything new you're just playing a game mm -hmm. and to a, to a large extent the majority of people playing poker are losing money and only a very small subset of poker players are making money and poker players don't tend to be very like, charitable they tend to be kind of like grumpy and mm. and and you know greedy you almost right. have to be to a certain extent you know but i that that being said you know there is a small amount of poker players who are wonderful uh you know i don't mean to paint everyone with a such a large brush but and that ties into what makes the majority of poker players kind of grumpy and maybe not as happy as they could be is the loss aversion that we alluded to earlier. If you wanted to talk about that for a moment, mm -hmm. uh, if you're someone who's had experience with poker players, you, you probably would agree that a lot of them are kind of like, like I said before, uh, easily irritable type of people um maybe they uh, tend to be a little short and angry and maybe they just kind of have a, a sense of discontentedness and i think that the, where that comes from is this phenomenon called loss aversion so poker is a game where if you're winning you generally are kind of like flipping a coin over and over in terms of the odds and maybe you're coming out five, ten percent ahead. Ahead, but over over time, you're losing a hand, winning a hand, losing a hand, winning a hand, losing a hand, winning a hand, and then maybe you win two hands in a row, you know, and there's your edge, right? Mm -hmm. If you're an excellent poker player, and what can end up happening is because of the psychological phenomenon called loss aversion, which is that if you lose a dollar and you win a dollar, then you're upset. And that comes from this kind of deep, fundamental, evolutionary phenomena that 
humans really do not like to lose a resource because if you lose a resource, that might end up killing you. It's more likely that you end up dying because of a lost resource than living because of a gained resource. Hmm. So then if you lose and win the same amount of resources, then it's going to be a net emotional loss. And if you're constantly winning and losing, winning and losing, winning and losing, and your edge is very small, then even though you may be winning, even, maybe you are part of the top 10% of poker players that are winning, you're probably still going to fall into the category of people who are emotionally losing. And that's where loss aversion can take a toll on, on poker players and other people who potentially have a profession where they're, their lifestyle is mimicking that kind of um, you know, large amount of outcomes um, edge. Maybe maybe if you're in, into day trading or stocks, maybe something like that could could also uh, take a toll on you. Right. Yeah. I mean, we we think of like these kind of hyper competitive professions like that, but you know, and we associate it with you know high amounts of stress and. Obviously, not all forms of stress are bad. You know, sometimes if there's some, you know, stress that's causing you to, you know, do good work in the world, you know, cause you to have, you know, the desire to go out and, you know, do your life coaching. Obviously, that's a good stress. But it's interesting when you break down as far as why, you know, you know, why there's that kind of archetype of, you know, like the stressed out, like, you know, going crazy stockbroker or whatever. Because um, we kind of think about like, why is that really so? But it, I, I think that really makes sense, at least in part with that concept of loss aversion. Because, um, you know, yeah. if, if you're always kind of, you know, living your life in fear, we could, you know, kind of, I could bring it to a neuroscience perspective where it's, you know, kind of talking about, you know, you're, you're really, activating you know a lot your you know your limbic system and as far as kind of the emotional um kind of uh, reaction to a lot of those you know risk uh you know risk taking and, and winning and losing and you know something like that is where you're constantly you know running on on all of these different you know high you know having all these highs and lows that make kind of make sense that that may not be the the healthiest kind of way to live yeah potentially yeah and the late nights probably don't, late don't nights. Uh, help poker players either right uh it, it's interesting now that you've sort of been able to to synthesize all of kind of you know your different sort of uh interests or, or career paths um mm-hmm. or studies and then actually you know some of your clients, as you were telling me last time, actually are poker players. And, you know, yeah, even though they are in this kind of demanding position, you were telling me, you know, just, just the fact that if they can understand the concept mm-hmm. of loss aversion, that, that may actually uh, help them out, right? Yeah, because loss aversion, my assumption is that it's a pretty deep psychological phenomena. And when I say deep, I mean it's, not a newly evolved psychological phenomenon. I'm assuming that, you know, most mammals have it, if not most animals, right? So, you know, what we have 
an advantage over the animals is just with the prefrontal cortex and the, the ability to delay gratification and the ability to control our impulses, right? So if what we can, in the kind of more human part of the brain, understand that there may be this process happening more in the middle, you know, dog-like maybe part of our brain, then we can exert control over it, you know, depending on the, the makeup of your brain, you, one might be able to control it almost entirely. So mm-hmm. awareness, you know, can, you know, giving your prefrontal cortex the information in order to control the rest of the brain is certainly super valid technique. Yeah. Well, I think it, that's kind of a good way to kind of bring it back to full circle with kind of everything we've been talking about, about, you know, mm-hmm. fasting and, and the motivation and, and kind of willpower that that's needed, you know, to do that or to follow your goals or, you know, to decide to work out, you know, all of those things in large part are kind of driven by the prefrontal cortex and, and kind of in being able to inhibit those impulses that are saying, you know, go, you know, eat a third bowl of ice cream or, you know, you don't need to work out today. You know, you've had a long, you know, it's like all those, maybe the voice in our head, um, being able to sort of override that um i think with everything we've talked about including this concept of loss aversion being you know a super powerful um ability right to have a a super strong prefrontal cortex yeah definitely i think that there's a good chance that if you on a daily basis you know at the least once a day, are able to delay gratification, are able to exert some kind of willful mindfulness over something that you're having trouble with, would probably be equivalent to, you know, uh, doing a little bit of weightlifting for the body, something like that. So mm-hmm. um, the more that you can exert willfulness over another part of your brain, then I, I would see that as a strength building exercise for the mind, certainly. Awesome. Does that makes sense. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a great kind of way to wrap up as far as you know, kind of just uh, summarizing kind of a lot of the key points that we touched on. Um, yeah. Do you have uh, you know, this is you know your chance to you know plug whatever kind of uh, resources I know you know you've got your your personal coaching, if people are interested in that, where, yeah. how would they go about contacting you? Uh, you can go to my website, which is unlockyou.org. Uh, that's unlock and then you.org. And you can get in contact with me there or find me on the street. Find you on the streets, the, the hard streets of Eugene. Yeah. Eugene, Oregon. I'm on campus. Yeah. Yeah, or out, or out, uh, you know, picking veggies from your garden, right? Yeah. Probably yeah. find you out there a lot too. Cool, man. Well, thank you again for for being a guest, you know, on the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. Um, please do follow us, um, everyone. Uh, our Instagram is Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast, um, and also our YouTube channel, uh, Roscoe's Wetsuit. Um, you can find um, video uh, versions of all the podcasts there. 
Uh, so make sure you like and subscribe on YouTube. We also recently uh, just got on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts. So nice. If you got some time and you want to, you know, listen, listen at home, go for it. But now we got the ver- you know, the option where you can, you can uh, listen while you're you're driving or going about your day. So we got you covered in all in all the directions. So sweet. Thanks again, Chris. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right.